Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Today, we continue in a new study entitled Vision 2020, bringing faith into focus for a brand new year. And I want to ask you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. That will be the source of our study today. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And if you're worshiping in the Family Life Center and you're worshiping uh, off campus somewhere and you're tuning in, you are welcome into this time of study as we hear these words from sacred scripture. When he had returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when, when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after having dug through it, they let down the, the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why, why, why does this fellow speak in this way? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And at once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that, that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And, and he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which, which is easier, to, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up. And immediately took his mat and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the reading of the sacred word. It is reliable and it can be trusted. Let's pray together. God, during this time of study, we who are your followers, we yield to the tested authority of your sacred word. We've come into this place and in this, this time that we have devoted to fix our minds upon you, 
to focus our hearts upon you. And we recognize that for many gathered in this time and in this space, that's not an easy thing. We recognize and confess to you, God, that even now your children carry burdens that sometimes make it difficult to find our focus. Our prayers that you would help us today. Will you help us to hear more than just the, uh, the words of one man? Will you help us to hear a word from you that changes everything about us? For we humble ourselves before you and ask that you would transform the heart and mind. So come, Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire and fill us with your holy fire. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. But if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen. So I am grateful to be in a second part of this ongoing series together. Vision 2020. Last week I talked to you a little bit about how, you know, if we really think about it, how we view our lives, well, it shapes how we do our lives. Last week I had you think ahead to Christmas Eve of this year. I had you think ahead to the end of this year, and if we can, big word, proleptically look ahead at where we want our faith to be, more forgiving, more patient, more filled with grace and compassion and mercy, more loving, more reconciling. If we can look ahead and imagine our lives with deeper faith, then the way we view our lives will shape right now how we do our lives. And what I said last week is maybe you have this desire to grow in Christ spiritually this year, but maybe you don't know where to start. And I said last week, well, maybe here's a tip. In your worship guide, all through this series, the month of January, I am printing up a copy of all seven of our core values as a church. And I said then what I'm saying to you now, these aren't just core values that, that keep the institution going, that somehow organize the religion. No, these seven core values are at the heart of who we believe we are and what we believe God wants from us as a vibrant, growing family in the faith. And I said last week what I'm saying to you now, it might be that somebody within the sound of my voice finds within one of these, or maybe more than one of these seven core values, a kind of holy invitation to grow more deeply, to grow more deeply in worship, more deeply in theological depth and diversity, more deeply in authentic community and so on, all through those seven. But this week, right here and now, I want to lift up one of those core values, just one. I mean, the one that is at the very center of it all. In fact, I believe that this core value is the core value from which all of the others find their life and breath. It's core value number four. And I want to suggest that this core value of we value the gospel of Jesus Christ and the growth of his church, I believe this can be, for somebody here, a holy invitation to grow like you have never grown before this year in 2020. 
Now, this is what it sounds like when we hear it out loud. Believing deeply that the message of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, and further believing that the church universal is the visible presence of the risen Christ in any age, we value the gospel of Jesus Christ and the deliberate growth of his church so that this sure and certain hope may endure from generation to generation unto the end of the age. Now, you read this, and you see it's down on number four on our list of seven. And you're like, well, Sean, if it's all that important, why isn't it number one? <laughs> well, why did it rank only fourth? And I want you to think of it differently. Out of a list of seven, four is in the middle, at the heart. In the Ten Commandments, for example, in the Old Testament, in, in the book of Exodus, there are Ten Commandments. You know, because you studied the anatomy of the Ten Commandments with me, that the first three are about how to love God properly. The last six are about how to love people properly. But the one right there at the heart, commandment number four, to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, to worship is where loving God and loving people happen in the context of worship. Number four is the linchpin that holds together the love of God and the love of people. That's what we do every Sunday. It's at the heart of it. Without that one, all of the others are near impossible. Or, or it, at the end of Matthew 25, you know that part where Jesus says, hey, at the end of the day, there's coming this judgment and the, the master will come and, and, and all the nations will be put before him. And, and so the ones on his left, he will say, hey, look, I was hungry and you didn't give me food. I was thirsty and you didn't give me drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. I was sick and in prison and, and you didn't attend me or care for me. So I never really knew you. So away from me. And to the ones on his right, he will say, uh, to you, I was hungry and you gave me food. Thirsty, you gave me drink. I was uh, a stranger and you welcomed me. And I was sick and in prison and you, you cared for me. Remember that? What, at the heart of those five commands to give food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, welcome of the stranger, care for the sick and the imprisoned. In the middle, number three, right at the heart, is the welcome of the stranger. Because if we don't know how to open with compassion our hearts to the stranger among us, well, then all of the other commands fall apart. And in the same way, of these seven core values that give us identity as a church, the heart of it all is the gospel of Jesus Christ the growth of his church. And I want to suggest that there may be somewhere in there embedded, tucked away, a holy invitation to somebody here to grow like you never have before. Now, having said that, i got to admit to you that there can be really two kinds of audiences listening to me speak right now. I mean, right where we are, there can be two kinds of audiences when it comes to talking about the gospel of Christ. On the one hand, there is the audience for whom, and, and dial in, listen, there is the audience listening to my voice right now for whom you have never welcomed the gospel message. And it may be for a hundred reasons. It may because, be because of a journey that you have made and you have a certain level of woundedness. You've been burned by church, turned off by religious leaders in the church who have, who have somehow... Um, uh, abused your trust in the whole system and you've kept this gospel message at a distance and yet you know 
that you hunger and thirst for something that you've not yet found. And when we say to you the gospel is everything to us, what I mean by that is the gospel is simply a word that, that we use to, to describe good news. That's what the gospel is. It means good news. Well, what's so good about it? The good news is this. No matter where you are, no matter what your wound is, no matter why it is that at times when you're all alone, you feel more shame than you think you can bear, no matter what the sin is that keeps you thinking that you will never live whole again, here's the good news. This God is a God who meets you right where you are and loves you just as you are. Unfinished, imperfect, but loves you so much that God refuses to leave you there in your unfinished and imperfect state, but to love you back to wholeness and healing and hope. That's good news. And you're like, well, so what do I do about that if I actually really have never received it? Here's what you do. It is not that complicated. Religious people complicate these things all the time. It's not that complicated. Here's what you do. You come to a place where you recognize before God, I am not enough on my own. I'm out. I mean, I've got nothing left. I've tried everything, but no matter what I do to try to rescue myself, I keep coming up empty. I confess to you that in some ways I feel like I'm in this downward spiral of self-destruction and, and spiritual or moral decay, and I can't find a way to make the spiraling stop. I confess to you that I need you, and I believe I believe that you might be able to do something better with my life than I have done so far, so here I am. Give it a shot. If you come to that place, my sister and brother, the gospel message, the good news is God will not ignore a cry like that. The whole reason that we are here is because we are filled with witnesses among us who recognize at some point or another, you and I came to a place where we recognize we are not enough on our own. We need a rescuer. And Jesus Christ, because of the crucifixion on the cross, was this cosmic demonstration that God is willing to go as far as it takes to meet us in our suffering. But the resurrection of Christ is a cosmic demonstration that no level of suffering or sin or hurt or pain or woundedness has the final word. But that in the resurrection of Christ, we are all redeemed. We just have to yield our lives to it. So I admit to you, somebody sitting right where you are, I think just prayed that prayer. <laughs> I think you just prayed that prayer and you need to tell somebody. At the end of church today, maybe you needed to come and tell me or one of the other pastors. But I believe that there are two kinds of audiences hearing me today. One is the audience of those who need to pray that prayer right now, right this very day, and find life. But the other audience, the other audience, well, it's the rest of us. And the rest of us, we are they who have been following Christ for a while. We recognize the immense value of this grace that has been poured over our lives. And we have been rescued and we know it. We've been walking with him for a while. 
But our message today is you've been rescued in order to rescue. You and I who have been rescued from our own self-destruction, from our own sin, we have been rescued so that we join God in God's great redemption plan of bringing the rest of a hurting world into hope and into healing and into wholeness. A few months ago, I said to you, it's almost like if you had uh, the cure to cancer, I mean, you knew the cure to cancer, but, but you kept that to yourself, it would not only make you cruel, it would make you criminal. Can you imagine? And yet you and I do have the pathway to wholeness by a relationship with Jesus Christ. That means that this fourth value, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the growth of the church, is not just for us to receive, it's for us to take, not just as a holy invitation, but as a holy mandate to make sure that everyone who is in our sphere of influence is aware there is a pathway to salvation. There is a pathway to wholeness and healing again. In fact, I'm going to say it even stronger than that. If you're a member of Johns Creek Baptist Church, the very moment you joined Johns Creek Baptist Church became the last moment that this church existed exclusively for you. The very minute you became a member of Johns Creek Baptist Church is the very minute that this church stopped existing simply for you because now you are a partner in the great redemption plan of God. You have been given information and transformation to share with the world in such dire need of hope and healing and wholeness. And this year in 2020, maybe it's your year to not just sit and receive the good news that we've been rescued, but to recognize, oh my word, if I don't share this with someone, I might just go mad. There's no better example of that kind of mandate than the story we read a moment ago in Scripture. So Jesus is becoming way more popular than anybody thought that he would become. His celebrity is growing. Everywhere he goes, according to the Gospel of Mark, he's talking about this kingdom of God, this way of life, this way of existing in the world that transforms everything, a way to exist where peace and reconciliation and hope and justice are the norm, a kind of kingdom now here on earth, even as it is in heaven. It's a way of life. It's so much a way of life that the people who first started following Jesus weren't known as Christians. They were known as people of the way. And that's what we were known as because when we said yes to Jesus, we weren't saying yes to a proposition. Hey, can you get me into heaven? Great, done. No, we were saying yes to a way of existing in this world that is radically different than this world. And so one day, the people of the way are so crowded into this house, they hear that Jesus is in this house and he's teaching and he's talking about what the way of life looks like. And, and they're so crowded that it's standing room only. They're, they're filled in the house, they're shoulder to shoulder in the doorway, they're leaning in through the windows and there's no room for anyone else. And we're told that there's this this paralytic, this man on a, on a stretcher, someone who is 
unable to get there on his own, and he's paralyzed, and in that world, to be physically paralyzed was more than just physical trouble. It meant that you were socially, spiritually, theologically, psychologically, relationally, ostracized from anyone. (laughs) It had all kinds of implications, and he couldn't get in because he had four friends attempting to get him into the house, but The text said that they couldn't get in because the crowd was so big. In fact, that's what verse 4 says. It says, they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. And that's where I want us to camp out for just one second here in this text. They couldn't get in because of the crowd. This guy needed to see Jesus more than anybody else. This guy needed to be in the room more than anybody else needed to be in the room, but they couldn't get in because the people of the way were in the way. And it raises a question that I want us to to hear as it provokes our theological imagination this day. Here's my question for all of us. Is it possible for the people of the way to just get in the way? Because this world is broken and falling apart and the people in it, you, me, we we are surrounded by people who are so hurting and wounded and in need of the master's touch that at times I wonder, are we doing things to help them get in the room where Jesus can do something about getting up and walking away from a mat? Or, or, or are we doing things that actually literally physically keeps them from getting near the one who could do something about them? And I, I just, I think, I think we do. I think at times we, we who are in the way can be in the way because the longer I serve as a pastor, the longer I walk with Jesus, let's just start there, the more I recognize I have people in my life who have been turned off from even wanting to walk in the room because of encounters they've had with people who were supposed to be in the room and people who speak with hatred and, and, and act with hatred and, and tweet and post with hatred and at the same time wear the label, we are people of the way. Well, what kind of way is that? Because we at times can order our way of life in such a way that it is contrary to the way of life that Jesus came to establish. And when we do, we are simply in the way. I wonder what we have to do as a church to get out of the way. I mean, when when you are speaking to people you love about people you don't love what's that conversation sound like when you are tweeting and posting and sharing on social media are you being identified with one group that is notoriously against another group because all of a sudden you have traded in your capacity to love all people by choosing to take allegiance with some of them Isn't he the one who said to us, you are to love your neighbor as yourself, but not just your neighbor, but your enemy? That means the one who doesn't think like you. That means the one who doesn't speak like you. The one who doesn't look like you, worship like you, vote like you. Is it possible that there are things that we do that somehow the church 
of Jesus Christ? Is there something that we do that in many ways contributes to the splitting of our, of our unity rather than the peacemaking of a broken nation and a broken world? Because if there is, gosh, we're just, we're just in the way. Well, Sean, but hang on. Aren't we supposed to stand up for things that are right? I mean, aren't we supposed to, to defend the faith Aren't we supposed to defend God, stand up for God, defend God? And my answer to you is no. Defend God. Who do we think we are? Do you know how you defend God? You defend God like you defend a raging lion. You get out of the way. God is not in need of defense. God is in need of one or two or three or four billion of us who acts like the four friends and says, you know, maybe there's a way to get to him from above. This question that burns and haunts me, me, I hope burns and haunts you. Can I ask this question in worship? Is there anything about my way of life that is actually getting in the way of life for someone who needs to see Jesus. I want you to think about that as we worship here for a moment. Because if there is anything that is getting in the way of life, in your way of life, then it needs to be removed today if we are to be serious about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the spreading of good news to those who hurt. The other part of this passage that absolutely fascinates me is how these four friends behaved they recognize they can't get in the front door. <laughs> they can't squeeze in the side window. But maybe there, you know, maybe there was one of the four who, who was a contractor <laughs> or a building manager. Maybe one of them was in construction because somebody, one of the four, knew that around the back of the houses in that region in that day, there was a, a staircase that wound up to the top of the roof. And they knew that on top of the roof there were these tiles and, and they knew that if you remove these tiles one at a time, then the ceiling joists were about three and a half feet wide. Well, gosh, that's wide enough to put a, a mat with a paralytic. If we can just find some rope, we can lower him. And I almost imagine a comedic scene here as Jesus is teaching below in the way of life and, and clay and dirt and mud starts to hit him on the head and he realizes something's going on. And they lower him into the presence of Jesus and Jesus we read these words. We hear, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And then, of course, you know, there's some religious leaders there. Sometimes you can be too religious for your own good. Sometimes you be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You've heard that. And these guys are like, come on, you can't do that. Who is he to forgive sin? That's not in the Bible. That's not how I, and, and yet Jesus said, are you serious? I mean, seriously? Okay, so which is going to be easier? Mm, is it going to be easier to say his sins are forgiven or uh, get up and walk away with your mat? And so he, he chooses to, to heal him. And he gets up and walks away with his mat. And everybody's amazed. But what amazes me about that phrase is the phrase itself. Read it again. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven when he saw their faith not the paralytic when he saw the faith of the four friends he said to the paralytic you're one lucky guy 
because their faith overcame all kinds of obstacles that were in the way because they saw you and they knew me and they believed if they can get you in the company of me, well, then you're walking out of this crowd. And it raises a question for me today as I think about you and me. My question is, who is your one? They knew that there was one among them who could not walk on their own. They knew, the four friends, the ones who had great faith, they knew there was one who couldn't get there unless they got them there. So my question is, who is your one? Because I promise you, God has put somebody in your life who is paralyzed by a thousand different um, issues. Some in your life are paralyzed with fear, paralyzed with anger, been so wounded with animosity and hatred that they, they themselves have become numb to even wanting to be in the room with him. There are those in your life who have been paralyzed and are lying on a mat that keeps them away from Christ. Who is your one? The reason I'm asking you is because I'm laying down a challenge to every one of you, my beloved people. I'm talking about every individual who is your one. Every couple, maybe you know one couple. If you are a family, maybe you know one family. My challenge to you is by Christmas Eve of this year, love one into the church. Love one into the church. If you're single, love one single person in. If you're a couple, one couple. If you are a student listening to my voice, you know a student who has no church home and no family that's going to encourage them toward a church home or faith. Who is your one? We have children in worship here. We have third and fourth and fifth graders. Children, if you are in third, fourth, and fifth grade, if you're in this room, can I see you? Can you raise your hand if you're in third grade or fourth grade? Anybody else? Okay. And in the Family Life Center, I'm sure there are some too. Here's my, my, my charge to our children. You guys know somebody at school, I promise you, who needs Jesus. And you have somebody in your school who needs your love. And with God's help, you can love one person into this church by Christmas Eve so that by the time you're standing there holding the candles and it's dripping on the carpet and, you know, you're wanting to blow it out, but it's not time, maybe he or she is standing with you. Okay, you're like, Sean, okay, but hang on. How's that the gospel? Are you talking about bringing them to Jesus or are you talking about bringing them to the church? And my answer is yes. Because is this church not the body of the living Christ? Is this church not filled with aliveness and hope? When you and I gather in here to sing music, are our spirits not lifted up from the miry clay? When we hear sermons of challenge, are we not awakened in some way to attempt to do this one more week at a time? If that is true, then the body of Christ is risen, risen indeed and living among us. That means that when you love someone into the church, you know what you're doing? <laughs> you are picking up a mat and you are walking, I don't know how many miles, just to get them in the room where the body of Christ is. And if you get them in the room where the body of Christ is, he'll get to them. He'll get to them. 
So my prayer, beloved, for you this week is that you would recognize that you are responsible for the gospel of Christ. May this week you and I both be aware of the gravity of that calling, but may we also be liberated by realizing that all it takes is getting out of the way and lifting up a mat. And may this week you recognize what it's going to take to pick up that mat of someone who needs your love. And may you find the courage to walk up the staircase to get them to the top of the roof. And may you, perfectly equipped by the God who made you, know what it will take to take the shingles off the top of the roof. And may you find the courage and the boldness to dig through the mud and the clay and find a piece of rope to lay them down at the feet of Jesus. And then in God's perfect timing, God will call your faith a healing agent in the world. For they may walk again in faith because of something you said something you did to simply love them, to go to their kids' ball games, to watch their kids in their theater productions, to when they are sick, take them soup or invite them to your own table to break bread and not just to talk about the game, but to listen to them, to see where it is in them that they are hurt and see where it is in them where they hope, to find what it is that makes them come alive. And in God's good timing, you love them here, and he makes them walk. Let's pray together. God, this is indeed our prayer. We recognize that you are constantly calling us to a way of life that is redemptive and whole, and a, a way of life that, that exemplifies the healing and the hope, and the wholeness that you offer. And we confess to you that at times we're just in the way. At times we trip over our own feet. And at times we forget who we are. But not today. Not today. We pray that you would give us the courage this day to bring those who you love into the church. To love them in such a way that is unfettered, uncompromising, a kind of love that sees them where they are, not where they should be. And we pray that as we perform acts of compassion and mercy and love around their lives, we trust you to do all the rest. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who makes paralyzed people walk again. In his name we pray, amen and amen.